Happy Father's Day. I know we've said it in the room a couple times. If you've joined us online, uh, we just want to wish everyone a very happy Father's Day. Today we celebrate dads and granddads and uncles and coaches and other men who have found a way to be a positive role model and make an investment in the life of a young person. And we do that with the recognition that Father's Day is complicated for some people uh, for a variety of reasons, maybe their own regrets or broken relationships or a sense of loss that accompanies this day. And yet we say Happy Father's Day. And we also celebrate our perfect Heavenly Father on Father's Day. And as we do so, we'll be continuing our series titled The Heart of a Disciple, where we have been looking at what is different inside the heart of a disciple as opposed to the heart of someone who is not a disciple of Christ. And we can't be exhaustive uh, and cover everything, but we've been focusing on a few things um, and we'll continue to focus on a few things in the weeks ahead that set the heart of a disciple apart. And when we talk about the heart, uh, we're talking about the core, we're talking about the center of our being, the soul of a person, that place where our emotions and our passions might be rooted. And so what is different about that in the heart of a disciple as opposed to the heart of someone who is not a disciple? A disciple is a, a follower, a learner, an apprentice of Jesus Christ, somebody who is intentionally focused on learning to trust and follow Jesus, to trust and obey, to become more like Jesus as a result of following them. And so as we think about the heart of a disciple, we're kind of answering the question, what propels a disciple into action and what directs the actions that a disciple takes? And so far we've looked at the idea that the heart of a disciple is on fire. The two on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, after Jesus uh, had had been crucified and died and then resurrected. They're on their way to Emmaus, presumably their hometown, and they encountered Jesus on the road, and, and they didn't recognize him at first. But after they knew who he was, they looked at each other and said, were not our hearts burning within us as we walked with him on the road? So the heart of a disciple is on fire, and the bottom line that week was that encountering Jesus sets the heart of a disciple on fire, and we should be encountering him early and often each day, and being rekindled in our passion for following him. And then week two, we talked about how the heart of a disciple is hungry, hungry for more of Jesus, hungry for more of his ways, hungry for more of his word, and that the heart of a disciple has a tremendous appetite for more of Jesus. If you missed either of those messages, you can catch them online. You can go to our Facebook page. You can go to our website, linwoodchurch.org, and click on the media tab. You can always catch up if you miss a week, especially going through the summer. That's maybe likely to happen. Last week, we set our sights on Romans chapter 12 and how Paul talks about putting love into action. And we talked about how the heart of a disciple is loving, and the heart of a disciple puts love into action. The heart of a disciple doesn't settle for a love that is inactive. The heart of a disciple intentionally puts that love 
into action in tangible ways. And that leads us into today because one of the most loving things that we can do as disciples of Christ is to extend forgiveness to others. And so we're going to be talking about how the heart of a disciple is forgiving, forgiving towards others. Even when our flesh, even when our minds, even when our emotions say don't forgive, they're not worth the forgiveness. They hurt you. They, they, they don't deserve to be forgiven. The heart of a disciple pushes through that and finds a way to forgive, to be forgiving. And so we're going to be starting in Luke chapter 15, and you can open that up if you have a Bible with you. If you want to use one of our pew Bibles, you can step forward and grab one of those. It'll be on page 1624 for those of you that are in the room. Um, But we're going to be looking at the heart of our Heavenly Father today as revealed by Jesus Uh, in this chapter. Very, very powerful chapter of Scripture. It opens with a dialogue between Jesus and some of the religious leaders of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, and they're criticizing Jesus, saying, this man eats with sinners, and he associates with tax collectors and these people that are, at the time, the bottom rung of society. And they're criticizing him for that. And Jesus tells three stories in response to their criticism. The first story that he tells is the story of the lost sheep. He says there was a shepherd who had 100 sheep. One of them was lost. Would he not leave the 99 behind and go find the one? But the lesson at the end of that little parable is very important. And he says, I tell you, there is more rejoicing in heaven over one lost sinner who repents, who comes back than over 99 who don't need to repent. So he's kind of getting in the Pharisees' face right now and really bringing it home to them in the application. Then he tells a second story, and he tells a story about a a woman who had 10 coins. They're called drachmas. That's a one day's wage. So figure out your hourly wage or figure out your annual salary and do the math, and and that would help you understand. A drachma was pretty valuable. We're not just talking about a penny or a quarter. We're talking about a day's wage. What's a day's wage for you? She loses one. And he said, would you not scrub the house, you know, sweep it clean, find that lost coin. And once you found it, you'd rejoice and maybe even call some friends and say, oh, you're not going to believe this. I found the coin. Thanks for praying. And then makes the application again. There's more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents. And just in case they hadn't figured it out, just in case they hadn't gotten the point, he tells one more story. And that's the story we're going to focus on today. It's a story of a man with two sons. And so as this has progressed, you go from one out of a hundred, so relatively low value, one out of a hundred sheep, to one out of ten coins, that's a higher value, now to a man with two sons. And what's different in this story, I'll summarize the first ten or so verses, and then we'll look closely at the last dozen or so verses, but what's different in this story is that of those two sons, one decides to leave. It's not lost, not misplaced, doesn't wander off like a sheep. He decides to leave. In fact, he says to his dad, and he's the younger son, so it's a smaller inheritance, but he says, I don't want to wait for you to die to get your stuff. Can you give it to me now? And for whatever reason, the father agrees to this, and the son takes off, and he leaves. And we're told that he wastes and squanders the wealth in riotous living in a far-off land. 
And that is followed shortly by a famine in that land. And he finds himself feeding pigs. And he's so hungry that he wants to eat the food, the slop that he's giving to the pigs. And it says nobody gave him anything. He was completely alone, completely without resource. And he comes to the end of himself. And that's a painful place to arrive, but it can be a wonderful place to arrive if you find God at the end of yourself. And so he comes to the end of himself. He comes, as Scripture says, comes to his senses. And he realizes that the servants in his father's house have it better than he does. And he reasons, maybe I can go back to my dad and say, I don't deserve to be your son anymore. Can I be a slave in your house? Because the slaves have it better than I do. And that's where we pick up the story. We'll look at this, uh, break this up into a few chunks. But we pick up the story in verse 20. He got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And this is a beautiful, beautiful picture. Perhaps one of the clearest pictures in Scripture of God's posture towards those who repent, towards those who return to him, towards those who come back to him. And so we see the father sees him from a long ways off. And that to me says he was looking for him. He was watching for him. Maybe he was up on a hill looking, hoping, praying that his son would return. And so he sees him when he's a long ways off. And he doesn't wait for him to get back. He runs out to meet him, we're told. And he embraces him and he kisses him. And all of these would be very undignified shows of emotion for a man of some status. And we know that he has land. We know that he has servants. He's a man of some status in his community. And so for him to run, he would have had to hike his robes up and run out there. And then he throws his arms around him and he kisses him. And all of these are very uncharacteristic expressions of emotion, undignified expressions of emotion. And keep in mind, his son is fresh out of the pig pen. He probably smells terrible. He probably looks awful. And according to Jewish law, just touching his son would have made the man unclean because he had been around pigs. So this was a big deal. This is no small thing. And that's why it it gives us such a clear picture into the heart of a father, the heart of our heavenly father, in response to those who come back and those who return to him. And so the son has his speech prepared, right? He's been rehearsing it all the way home. He says in verse 21, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father cuts him off. He doesn't even hear what he's saying. He doesn't even respond to that. He says, We're told the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. And in so doing, the father doesn't just say the words, Oh, I forgive you. He demonstrates beyond a shadow of a doubt that this son is welcomed back, that this son is accepted, that this son, they're going to celebrate his return. 
And he gives him a robe to cover his shame. He's in rags, but they get the best robe and they put him over. And it reminds me of clear back at the fall in Genesis chapter 3, after, after Adam and Eve had sinned and they felt the shame of that sin and they stitched some fig leaves together and make these lousy garments that will not last. And God deals with them and then we're told that he prepared animal skins for them to cover their shame. And God has been making a way to cover our shame ever since we see it we see it here as well he puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet covering his shame signifying that he is welcome back and a celebration begins with the words that my son who was dead we thought he was gone forever he was dead to us is now alive again there's a resurrection that has taken place A picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, dead and then brought back to life. And unfortunately, the story doesn't end there. The lesson isn't over. There's more to the story and there's more to the lesson. In verse 25, we read, Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing So he called one of his servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he he has him back safe and sound. And the older brother rushes in to join the party and give his younger brother a big hug. It's not what it says, is it? No. The older brother shows that he is filled with jealousy and self-righteousness and anger. And that's a bad combination. And so we read that the older brother becomes angry and refuses to go in. So his father has to go out and plead with him. This would be an embarrassment that one of his children wouldn't come in. And that he would have to go out and not ask him to come in, but plead with him to come in. But he answered his father, look... All these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? You see the anger, you see the resentment, you see the jealousy, you see the self-righteousness all brewing within the older brother? It's not unlike the Pharisees who began this whole thing with, you know, he welcomes sinners. Can you believe he welcomes sinners? He should have nothing to do with them. And the older brother is saying, you should have nothing to do with him. Won't even call him his brother. He says, this son of yours. He doesn't even acknowledge that he's brothers. He's still dead to the older brother. And he refuses to go in, even though his father is pleading with him. And maybe the most telling of all, he discounts the time that he has had with the father. That he hasn't had to learn the hard lessons that the younger brother has. Instead of saying, I've enjoyed your fellowship these many years, he says, I've been slaving away for you. And he doesn't say, you never threw a party for me. He says, you never gave me a goat to go celebrate with my friends. There's a, there's a disconnect there. 
And this is what can happen with religion. This is what can happen with a mindset that says, I've got to do more and try harder to get more from God. Do more, try harder to get more from God instead of enjoying and basking in the fellowship that we have with God and not taking that for granted. He discounts the value of the time that he's had. And yet the father's response is once again overwhelmingly patient and forgiving, even with the older brother. He says in verse 31, My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. He acknowledges, you are my son. Powerful words. My son. You're always with me. You've enjoyed the fellowship. You haven't had to feed the pigs. You haven't starved to death. Everything I have is yours. He's already received his inheritance and squandered it. All the rest is yours. And this is your brother. And he was dead and he is alive again. We had to celebrate. We had to forgive. We had to accept him. We had to welcome him. We had to embrace him because that's what the father does. He forgives. He accepts. He welcomes. And he celebrates the repentant sinners as they come home. And that leads us to our bottom line, that the heart of a disciple follows our Heavenly Father in giving forgiveness. The heart of a disciple follows our Heavenly Father in giving forgiveness. When we don't want to give forgiveness because we're hurt, we follow our Heavenly Father who has forgiven us and we forgive others. The heart of a disciple follows our Heavenly Father in giving forgiveness. As I said, Jesus reveals the heart of the Father in this story. It's a heart that is willing to forgive, willing to accept, willing to embrace, willing to welcome, and willing to celebrate. But Jesus didn't stop there. He didn't just tell a story. He modeled the heart of the Father by going to the cross and dying a horrific death For me and for you and for every person who has ever turned their back and run away. And some of the last words that Jesus said were, Forgive them, Father, for they don't know what they're doing. He modeled the heart of the Father in following the Father's example to give forgiveness, to extend forgiveness. And as such, he invites us, he commands us, and he expects us to forgive others as well. At the end of the Lord's Prayer in Matthew chapter 6, in verses 14 and 15, he says some words that I think a lot of us probably wish weren't in the Bible, especially if we've been deeply, deeply wounded and we're having a hard time forgiving. He says in verse 14, If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you good news, right? But he presents the flip side as well. But if you do not forgive men their sins, your father will not forgive your sins. 
And I think he had the older brother in mind. That the older brother is staying outside. He's staying outside of the celebration. He's staying outside of the party. He is self-selecting out of the fellowship through his unforgiveness, through his unwillingness to forgive, to extend forgiveness, to follow the heart of the Father. And that's why our bottom line is that the heart of a disciple, of a follower of Jesus Christ, of a learner, of one who is, who is intentionally focused on learning to trust and follow Jesus, the heart of a disciple follows our Heavenly Father in giving forgiveness and forgiving others. Because if Jesus is Savior, that means he's forgiven us. If he's Lord, that means that we will forgive others. And a lot of Christianity is focused around the Savior aspect of Christ. And lordship gets short shrift too often. And yet in the New Testament, there are 16 references to Jesus as Lord, and there are hundreds. I'm sorry, I always say that wrong. Doggone it. There are 16 references to Jesus as Savior, and hundreds that refer to him as Lord. And yet for every reference to Jesus as Lord, there are hundreds on our lips as Savior. So there's an inversion that's taken place there. If he is Savior and we are forgiven, he is also Lord and we must forgive others. And I know that forgiveness is hard. I know that there are costs associated with forgiveness. It costs a lot emotionally. It can cost a lot relationally. It can cost a lot of energy. And yet, I have found over and over that unforgiveness costs us even more than forgiveness. That when we stay stuck in unforgiveness, that costs us more than the emotional toil of forgiving another person. I've heard it said that, that unforgiveness is like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. It's kind of a good picture. It always costs us more than forgiving that other person. And I ran across a quote. It's alarming to me how often when I'm preaching on a subject, I will see things, I will see quotes, whether it's social media or, uh, you know, reading something, a devotional that is on that topic that I'm going to be preaching on. And this was by an author that I follow. Uh, her name is Alicia Britt-Chole, and she writes this, Thankfully for our souls, we do not need someone's permission to forgive them. We just need our permission to forgive them. We don't need their permission. We only need to permit ourselves to forgive them. In fact, I would say they don't even have to be alive to forgive them. And maybe that hits home on Father's Day. Or maybe there's someone else that's coming to mind right now as we talk about forgiveness. And maybe they're here, and there can be reconciliation, and there can be restoration, and maybe they're gone. And you can still go through the process of forgiving. But I wanted to... Uh, to show you this luggage strap to sort of illustrate one of the qualities of forgiveness. I got this luggage strap when I was going to be going through some international airports on a mission trip several years ago, and I used it, and it worked really well to tag my bags together while I was going through international airports and things like that, and then I've hardly touched it since. And so the Velcro is still really good. 
like, you know, it's really sticky. And this Velcro teaches us something about forgiveness. If you've ever seen Velcro under a microscope, there's two parts. There's the fuzzy side, the soft fuzzy side, and then there's the more rigid, harder side. And that is little loops that have a little cut in them so that they can catch the fibers of the fuzzy side. And when you have a really fresh piece of Velcro, you kind of have to work it open a little bit and then pull pretty hard, and it takes a little doing every time, and it would be good as a luggage uh, strap to hold that together. And this is sort of like forgiveness. The first time you forgive, you're just stuck for a while, right? And you got to kind of work the edges a little bit, and you're not even sure you want to. Like, do I really have to do this? Did, let me look at Matthew 6 again. Does it really say that... All right, I'm working around the edges. Okay, now I got good grip. Ow, man, that hurt. Took some effort. But here's what happens if we don't forgive. We just stay stuck. And we can't, we'll miss something that wants to, something good that wants to stick to us in that part of our lives. It can't, can't get to us because we're stuck in unforgiveness. And if I were to take this and do this a hundred times or a thousand times, or better yet, I could give it to one of my kids. They would probably really enjoy that, and they could just wear that thing out. Do you have a piece of clothing, or maybe I've got an old pair of shorts. I bought them used to take on a summer camp with my boys a couple years ago, and the Velcro in them is all worn out. But I didn't want to bring a whole big old pair of shorts up here. But when you push that together, it's not going to stay because the Velcro's been worn out. And that's kind of what we should be like. We should be so used to forgiving that once we get something over us, we recognize it, and we're like, I'm not going to have that stuck to me. I'm going to pull that off and get to the point where things can't even stick to us. And you know people like this. You know people that their Velcro is not very sticky anymore. And they are quick to forgive. And they are quick to embrace. And they are quick to accept. And they manage to do it in a way that doesn't make them a doormat, that doesn't expose them to needless pain. They have boundaries. We're not talking about about just becoming a doormat. But they have learned the grace of giving forgiveness, of following our Heavenly Father in forgiveness. Because if you never forgive, you just stay stuck. Stuck in the pain, stuck in the resentment, stuck in the anger, stuck in the bitterness. And our goal as followers of Christ, as people seeking the heart of a disciple, is to wear out the Velcro of unforgiveness in our lives so that it's no longer sticky. And there's another thing Jesus shows us that I think is an application in this story. He shows us how to be the perfect older brother. Unlike the resentful, self-righteous older brother in the story, Jesus does just the opposite, doesn't he? He doesn't sit at home and enjoy the inheritance that he's going to have. He leaves. He left heaven on a divine rescue mission to seek out each and every one of us, every single person who has strayed from the Father, and to bring us back home to the Father. He puts love into action and goes on a mission to find us 
and bring us back. And he models in doing that what we are to do, what the heart of a disciple does. It goes beyond forgiveness. It goes on a mission to find people and bring them back. To find people and bring them back to the Father. And he invites us to become that older brother. Not like the scribes and the Pharisees that we're finding ways to keep those sinners out, to distance ourselves from the sinners. Instead, he invites us to be his version of the older brother, to right that wrong that occurred between the first two brothers in all of Scripture. If you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 4, the first two brothers that exist, they're born to Adam and Eve. They're named Cain and Abel. And we're told that Cain and Abel each bring a sacrifice to God. And for whatever reason, that's a whole other sermon, and maybe we'll preach it someday. But for some reason, God accepts the sacrifice from Abel, but he doesn't accept the sacrifice from Cain. Got a couple of brothers going around right here, right? Which is kind of time out. I just love having kids in the sanctuary. I hope you love having kids in the sanctuary. I hope you parents that are at tables and don't worry if your kids make a little bit of noise. Like, we're a family of families, and I think it's awesome, even if they're wandering around in the middle of my big point when I'm trying to bring it home, right? It's awesome. We got kids in the sanctuary. So you have two brothers, Cain and Abel. They each bring a sacrifice to God. God accepts Abel's. It was better. I could tell you why. He rejects Cain's, and Cain is so jealous that he ends up killing Abel, the first two brothers in the human race. And God comes to Cain, and he says, where is your brother Abel? And Cain asks the first question of God in all of Scripture. He says, am I my brother's keeper? That's on page 2 of your Bible, maybe three, depends on how small the print is. And the rest of Scripture answers that question with a resounding yes. We are our brother's keeper. You are your brother's and your sister's keeper. You are your neighbor's and the stranger's keeper. We are meant to join Christ as the perfect older brother and go on divine rescue missions to find people and to bring them back to God. These are our marching orders. This is what our Lord and Savior has modeled for us, to put love into action, to forgive, to repair the breach, and to go and find others who are far off and bring them back. Last week we talked about this word philiozenian. Philiozenian. It's this Greek word to practice hospitality, the love of strangers. And it's one of the ways that we put love into action. And Jesus modeled it for us so perfectly. And this story illustrates what should have happened. The older brother should have gone out and found his younger brother and brought him back. And the scribes and the Pharisees should have been taking the good news of God's love to the sinners and the tax collectors and bringing them into the fellowship. And yet they weren't. And so Jesus models for us what we are to do and how we are to be. We are to follow our Heavenly Father in giving forgiveness, in seeking out those who are far off and bringing them in. And so my question for you today is, are you ready to come home? Are you ready to come home? Are you ready to receive your Father's forgiveness?
Do you find yourself in this story identifying with the younger brother who rejected the father's love and who left and went to a far off place? Are you ready to come home? Or maybe you find yourself in the position of the older brother and there's somebody to forgive and it's like they're sitting on your lap right now. You can't get them out of your mind. Lean into that. Have a spiritual conversation with somebody that you trust and ask them to pray for you as you seek to bring forgiveness to follow your heavenly father in extending that forgiveness to somebody. Or maybe you need to go out and bring somebody home. Maybe some of the Lord has laid somebody on your mind and you know it's time to have another conversation with them. It's time to share your faith with them. It's time to invite them to come to church or invite them to to be in a discipleship group with you or invite them to just have a cup of coffee and start rebuilding a relationship or building a relationship. That's what discipleship is, remember? Disciple making is building a relationship with someone in order to help them learn to trust and follow Jesus. Is God laying somebody on your heart today to do that? Wherever you find yourself in this story, my hope and my prayer, as always, is that you'll respond in faith to what the Spirit is bringing into your mind. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are, we are so thankful for your word and we are so thankful that the heart of the Father is loving and forgiving and accepting. And we thank you that we had a perfect older brother who was not content to just let us be lost, but came to find us, came to bring us home. Thank you for being that perfect older brother, and God help us to join you in this redemptive mission to reconcile the world to yourself. Help us to, as we forgive, to be bridge builders and and to be those who go out and to bring others back. That your kingdom would expand. And that heaven would be full of people that we have found and brought back. People that we have reconciled with or reconciled to you. if there's one in this room or in front of a screen somewhere is listening to this and realizes that they've wandered off they rejected your love and, and they've made a mess of things I pray right now that, that they like the younger brother would come to their senses that they would return to their father that they would find him waiting for you to return and that there would be celebration and rejoicing in heaven today this day sinner comes home, comes back to life and is found again in the Father's house. It's in Jesus' name we pray.